Hello everyone and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and today I'm having a wide-ranging discussion with my friend Ivan Thranholm from Denmark. Uh, those of you who follow my writing regularly will know that back in 2018 I wrote a five-part series on uh, the return of faith to Russia, taking a look at uh, the interactions between the West and Russia, how Russia looks at Western decadence as evidence uh, that Russia is right and the West is wrong. And I actually got alerted to that story by Iben. Uh, well, a couple of years ago, I interviewed her on my podcast on on the decline of masculinity. And she had said, you really should look into this Russian story. And so I did. I wrote some pieces uh, for The Bridgehead. I also wrote a, an essay for The American Conservative on this subject. And so I wanted to have Iben on the podcast just to talk about her insights about what's going on in her home country in Denmark and around the world, because so many things are going on at the moment with uh, the rise of the woke movement, with the COVID-19 pandemic, with the lockdowns, with the spiritual vacuum crisis in Europe and elsewhere. And I just wanted to catch up with her and share her insights with all of you. So this is that conversation. To start us off, I believe the last time uh, that we hung out in person, it was actually in Moscow and Russia when I was doing that research project on the resurgence of Orthodox Christianity in Russia, which is a subject that you've done a lot of writing on. And that was back in 2018. So just to give our listeners a bit of an idea of, of who you are and what your career has been like, maybe give people a bit of background on, on yourself and, and your broadcasting and writing career. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on this show. I, uh, I'm a theologian and I'm a journalist and I'm a convert to Catholicism. Could have been a pastor in the Danish Protestant Lutheran Church, but I'm not. I am a journalist and a columnist and a reporter. And we met in Russia because I was uh, already in 2014, I started to have an interest in Russia because I could see how Christianity was was reviving in the old communist countries and especially what used to be called the Soviet Union. And I thought that was really interesting. And the first time I went to Russia was during the, um, the crisis with Crimea. And a lot of people told me not to go because they thought it would be dangerous. And, you know, I, um, I grew up in Scandinavia and I was very, very afraid when I was a child, everybody was in Scandinavia, that we would have a Russian invasion because that was quite likely and there were communists in Denmark that wanted a revolution and Denmark was a good position for the Russians because we have water all around us and then they would have access to the North Sea. So I was always really afraid of Russia. So I was a little bit afraid when I took the flight with Everflot from Copenhagen to Moscow uh, seven years ago, eight years ago it is now. Um, but when I arrived, I was so extremely amazed to see how I saw Christian symbols and Christian faith being ex expressed all over the public square. And uh, I saw so many devout people and I met so many people for whom Christianity and Christian morality was just completely normal and was what they wanted their society to be influenced with. So while here we have broken families and the LGBT agenda, Russians are opposing this and young people are returning to the church. You know, it's actually quite vogue to have your, to have a spiritual director as a young person, if you are Orthodox. And um, I really see that Orthodoxy is, uh, is capable of um, making modern people live a traditional lifestyle. Uh, and I think that's really interesting to see how you can combine modern life with, you know, the old Christian traditions. And that is Russian life. Unfortunately, people in the West are brainwashed with that Russia is evil and, you know, they're coming to make war and, you know, all these terrible things, which I think is, you know, a lie. Because I don't think that the Russians, they want a war or they don't want a war because they have lost so many men. Every Russian family is affected by a loss of a loved one in the Second World War. 
Um, and uh, there were so many people who were also lost uh, in camps um, during uh, the Soviet era. So no, they don't want to lose more men. They, they just want to rebuild their Russian culture. And Russian culture, the heart of Russian culture is orthodoxy. And that's why I think, as Christians in the West, we have a lot of come. We have a lot. We have a lot in common with the Russians. That's what we are not allowed to be told in the mainstream media, and that why that was why I went reporting because I wanted to see it with my own eyes, and I was not disappointed. And I was very happy to be joined by you, because you saw it with your own eyes as well. Yeah, it was a phenomenal experience, and, and I did a whole bunch of reading before we met up. And one of the things that had, had really interested me was an essay by Peter Hitchens, who's a British columnist for the Mail on Sunday. And he wrote an essay just uh, with a very blunt title. It was just uh, The Cold War is Over, in which he said many of the things which you just articulated, uh, which he said, look, uh, you know, the Russians are, are, are not interested in war whatsoever. In fact, a lot of their aggression and their hostility is due to NATO's expansion into what they perceive as, as, as their hemisphere. And he said, regardless of whether or not all of the accusations leveled against the Putin regime are true, he said, let's say they're all true. He said, still claiming that they're actually a threat to the West is fundamentally ridiculous and, and nobody's actually trying to understand the Russian people. And that's what that trip uh, was really good for was just to, we we you set up a whole bunch of interviews for us we did a bunch of interviews on our own we tried to talk to a lot of just everyday people students in St. Petersburg and yeah getting their their perspective was really fascinating you know that, that's what journalism used to kind of be about right was a uh, you know going out and talking to people and finding out what their thoughts were um, what's that been like uh, since then I know that's been one of, uh, of 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 your topics of interest I've read some of your pieces on Russia. Another thing that we've discussed before on the podcast is the decline of European masculinity, um, which kind of dovetails into some of your, your pieces on Russia, actually. Um, what have been the main, your main points of focus before we get into a, another conversation I want to have on, on what the COVID-19 pandemic has done in Scandinavia? Yeah, um, I think, yeah. I saw a video the other day uh, about how Russians do recruit men for the military. And you saw really some very tough guys, you know, uh, doing what do you call it, uh, push-ups. And, uh, and they were really very, very, very masculine. And then uh, right after you saw how, you know, the U.S. military are recruiting their men. And actually it was a woman. It was a girl and she said, oh, I was raised by two mothers and uh, I'm so proud of myself and I really have, you know, a background that makes me want to go into the military. And it, every, everything was just completely messed up with, you know, values, two mothers. It was a woman that was no masculinity to, you know, to protect America. So you could see the difference there. Uh, and most men here in Scandinavia, they are actually becoming feminists. They're not men anymore. And they are raised, many of the men of my generation and younger, they are raised by lonely mothers and they are raised to become like women. Uh, or I would say feminists, not, not true women, but, but feminists. And that's really tragic here in Scandinavia because every second marriage uh, in my country, Denmark, will end in a divorce. And I think it's because that people are completely confused about the gender roles. They don't know how to make a marriage work because there are two individuals and they're sort of, you know, gender neutral because there is no role for a, a woman or a man. They're simply on the same level and, and they have to be this kind of equality. And I think Many marriages or, you know, relationships just really get boring when you don't have that kind of complementarity. And that's what we have lost here. So I think it was refreshing to see that Russian military film, How to Recruit Men, because that was a real man. I mean, and that's what I like about Russia is that, you know, Russia can be very brutal. It is a brutal culture in many ways, very masculine. Uh, and yet... It's very soft and it's very romantic and very feminine. So this kind of sort of, they have this balance between masculinity 
masculinity and femininity. That's, I think, what it makes Russia so attractive to me, because it's actually like going back to the U.S. in the 50s or something like that, or maybe even before the war. So you find this, this old traditional lifestyle, yet it's very, very modern. And Moscow, you, you know, for because you, you, you saw it yourself, you have all sorts of you know, very nice restaurants are very good at, inter at interior decoration and, and people are very vibrant and it's a, it is a modern city, but yet they still have the old values. And I think that's just fantastic that you still have a country on this earth, on this planet that, that where you can find this. This is actually a good segue in, into what I wanted to talk to you about with regard to Scandinavia, because I remember something you saying to me a couple of years ago, really standing out. It was when we were in Moscow, uh, you had a Danish cameraman with you for an interview that you were doing. I had one of my, my friends who's an investigator with me, and it was after you'd gone to church and you said, when I'm in Russia, I feel like I can breathe because I'm not being suffocated by secularism, because in my home country, Christianity is sort of an antique from the past. Now, moving to the side, all the, all, all the various criticisms about um, on what the Russian regime is or isn't, it is true, as you pointed out, that it's it's becoming a, a more popular thing uh, uh, to be to be a Christian or associated with Christianity in Russia, which I saw actually, uh, it was on, on the train on the way back from St. Petersburg after doing an interview. And I was talking to one lady who, who I saw me taking notes and asked what our project was about. And I told her a little bit about it. And she said, I'm not Christian, but my parents are. And she listed off all the people she that she knew, uh, knew were Christian. It kind of reminds me of how these days in woke culture, people are always, you know, hasten to say, I know lots of people in the LGBT community, or I have friends and in, in, in such and such a group but in Russia it was the other way around right she yeah. wasn't Christian but she wanted me to know that she did know lots of them and was good friends with them nonetheless and so when you say it's suffocating in Scandinavia most of of our listeners here are North American there will be some Europeans but mostly North American could you kind of kind of explain for them what what it was like and has it changed as you grew up or what is what is it like in Denmark now and what was it like when you were a child I think it was even perhaps even more secular when I was a child because I grew up in the in the 70s and uh, you know at that time marxism was very um much into all our universities now of course we have the second coming of marxism but we have the first marxism uh, in the 70s so all our teachers they of course they didn't want to talk too much about christianity and nobody really cared about god um, I, I, I was very lucky because I came from a family where God was something that we talked about and my parents were believers. So I was raised in a very, very secular uh, environment. I think now it's very, very secular as well. But I see that, you know, it has become trendy to talk about God. Recently, we have had some some uh, public voices, uh, people who are quite known here in Denmark, um, for entertainment or, you know, just being like uh, a sort of public voice. Um, there's, and also politicians, they start to refer to Christianity and some of them even had a conversion. And he's he's actually a comedian uh, and, and he's he has done a lot of sinful things and he has sort of <laughs> confessed that to the public and now he has become baptized. So I think there is something going on here. I think there is a kind of, how should I express it? A kind, I wouldn't say an awakening. Maybe that is, you know, too much. But I think there is a growing understanding of that you need to have some kind of spirituality and that our culture actually is founded on Christianity. And I don't know what's going to happen in the years to come, but it's it's evident that our culture is sick. So I think more and more people would really need to look in other directions to survive. And maybe because Denmark is such a hyper-secular society and a welfare state where um, the state has, or the welfare state has replaced God, that's for sure, because people are very confident in the state and they do believe that the state can provide um, your entire life. So you, why do you need God? I mean, you you, you have the, the welfare state. But now we see that, that society is sort of starting to crumble. And with the COVID crisis, um, things are not so, I mean, are not the way they used to be, even though there is still 
you know, most Danes have really, really a big trust in the government still. But I see that that it's more acceptable now to talk about God in the public. We actually have a psychologist here and he's a bestseller author and he is not a believer, but he just, you know, published a book, um, had a book released the other day where he has spent a year trying to sort out his relationship with God. He still doesn't believe in God, but that he wants to join this conversation about God is a sign because he's very trendy and he's, he's talking to a lot of people that something is happening. So who knows? I mean, maybe it's the Holy Spirit who's trying, who's working uh, with the Danes somehow. Uh, so I see there is a shift now from when I grew up, when, you know, nobody really cared about it. People care about it now. And we also have discussions in the public about God and about religion and about Christianity as the foundation of Danish culture. So I think we are very secular, but there is a new trend and that is it is acceptable to talk about God. It wasn't before. That is inc- extremely interesting. I actually just wrote an essay uh, for Convivium magazine on the number of atheists who are increasingly coming forward and saying that our society cannot survive without some sort of animating, uh, you know, founding spirituality. You've got Richard Dawkins, who used to say religion is poisonous, now saying, um, well, I, I think that, uh, you know, not not so fast. I think Christian culture, at least, is necessary. You've got Scottish historian Neil Ferguson, who's an atheist, who, when I interviewed him recently, I, I asked him um, what spirituality he thought people should have, even if he couldn't quite believe it himself. And he said, I think people should go to church because our, uh, my study of history has taught me that we need Christianity. Uh, his wife, Ian Hersealy, says something uh, very similar. Sir Roger Scruton started going back to church before he had any animating belief in God because he couldn't believe in the resurrection. Douglas Murray calls himself a Christian atheist because although he doesn't believe in God, uh, he or he's at least agnostic, he, he does believe that Christianity is essential to Western culture. He said in an interview recently, it was kind of interesting when a religious guest had apologized for bringing up God again, uh, Douglas Murray said, don't apologize. I have no idea why anyone would think it'd be more important to talk about Labour Party politics than God, which is a, <laughs> was kind of an interesting way of, of putting it, I thought, right? It's it's true, right? Whether or not you believe in God, there is no more important subject than getting to the bottom uh, of whether or not he exists and if he does um, what he what he demands of us. So this new trend where people are coming forward and saying, um, we this spiritual vacuum needs to be filled by something. Um, because nihilism and wokeism and Islamism and all these other isms that, that have been rushing in or attempting to rush in clearly won't do is is a very interesting thing because it's such a marked shift from the angry atheists of you know the four horsemen of the apocalypse like like Christopher Hitchens. I sometimes wonder um, if he had lived longer if he would still say. Um, that religion poisons everything, or if he might be rethinking it the same way that Dawkins has somewhat rethought it, that his friend Douglas Murray has rethought it. Although a lot of the people that once said Christianity, you know, was poisonous are now thinking, oh, wait a minute, perhaps if we get rid of this, we won't know what comes next. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, development because uh, I agree with you that you see a lot of also, I mean, um, Jordan Peterson is talking about God all the time. Um, and that's another sign that that uh, something is going on. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, so I think it, it is it is interesting to see that there is something going on at the spiritual level right now in the world. Um, I still think we are in a spiritual battle, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but I think there there is a new trend. Uh, of people who would be, like you said, angry atheists. They're now coming forward and they are willing to to talk about it. And that's a new thing. And I think that, that I don't know where this is going to lead, but I, I know from, from scriptures that, that God wants everybody to be saved. So I think God is working with people, but it's always, you know, a matter of how open we are because God invites us all the time give us chances to come back and to, to, to relate to him and, and to where we come from. But it's a matter of whether we're willing to, to be open to it. But it seems that there is a new opening. And I think that's, that's just really uh, awesome. 
Didn't you uh, meet with and interview some of the atheists back in the day when this was the main cultural conversation? I, I might be remembering wrong, but I seem to remember you and I having a conversation about some of your conversations with the atheists a couple of years ago. Well, I, I actually um, interviewed Douglas Murray, uh, where we talked about whether, I mean, the whole um, conflict with uh, Islam in Europe uh, was because we have a spiritual void, a vacuum which I do believe it's, it's really the, the, the core of, of the whole conflict is that we are empty and they suddenly they arrive and they believe in something, whereas we believe in nothing. And that's why we find it so extremely overwhelming and we are afraid of them. It's because they actually are very self-assertive in their own faith and, and they are not compromising and we're not used to that. And I think that's very... I mean, it makes a lot of people very frightened. But if we were a strong Christian culture, we would say, okay, yeah, we understand that they are, they just have a different understanding of who God is. So we have to talk to them about their understanding of who is God. And I think Muslims, because I have talked to Muslims about that, and they're very open to talk to you about it. They might not agree with you, but they respect you if you can have a, a theological conversation with them. But if you just uh, want to force them into some kind of secular society, they're going to react. So I think the wise thing, or the most prudent thing would be to let more theologians, more believers talk to those radical uh, Muslims, because they will understand each other. And then maybe they could sort of, you know, you know, take them to Jesus instead, because you see that a lot of Muslims are converting in the Middle East, actually, to Christianity. And if a Muslim converts to Jesus Christ, you have no problems with that Muslim. He will integrate. He will be a fantastic person like everybody else. And there is some statistics that says that you know, Muslim converts to Christianity, they integrate completely fine uh, in societies and there is no problems. Uh, so we should, you know, spend much more effort in having, you know, conversations with them about who is God instead of, you know, trying to force them to, to be unbelievers because that's not going to work. It's just going to provoke them even more. So we had a conversation about that. And I, I think Douglas Murray actually agreed with me. And he said, it was hard to live your whole life as a nihilist or a nihilist. So at least he agreed to that. But I think for him uh, to make the big leap of faith is very is very is very difficult for many. So they are like you know they're 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 standing in the streets. They're looking into the shop window and they see that this shop is fine and 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 they agree that it's a good place where you can go and 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 buy things. But they won't enter the shop themselves. And uh, but maybe one day he will. Maybe you will see Douglas Murray convert to Christianity as well. Who knows? Did you ever meet Christopher Hitchens? Yes, I did in Washington. And that was a horrible experience because he was so aggressive. I, I have never met anybody who was so aggressive against religion as he was. It was, it was incredible. And I remember when I, I was in his private apartment and uh, I remember he had, you know, um, the sign of the devil is like a fork. And he had that kind of, you know, big fork in his entrance. <laughs> so, you know, I was a little bit disturbed by that. And uh, I tried to, to, you know, to, to make good arguments for Christianity, but he was extremely aggressive and he was not open to any kind of sort of middle ground. He was not. And I have met his brother, Peter Hitchens, quite a, uh, I met him here in Denmark. I have interviewed him and I think he's really a lovely uh, person. And, uh, the way he described his his the way he moved from communism uh, into Christianity uh, that was really beautiful. Um, so they were they are very very different. But it was interesting what you said before because maybe if had if he had still been alive, Christopher Hitchens, he might have had a different opinion about religion now. It's hard to say, but but he was very aggressive, very aggressive. He was very much against everything that had to do with religion. 
Well, and one of the reasons people always wonder what someone like Hitchens would say now is just because wokeism is 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 just so insane that a lot of the you know the old school liberals from the sixties, seventies, and eighties can't stomach the idea that you know men can get pregnant and and critical race theory and all these these different things. I was going to ask you because a lot of European countries have been much more successful at staving off of these American imports. Um, to what extent ha- has has sort of the woke movement taken root in Denmark, or is it largely contained in North America yet, in your view? Well, we just had our George Floyd moment here in Denmark a few weeks ago, because um, a video went viral, and uh, in the video you see a Danish man um, yelling at a Muslim family who is sitting on a beach with their two kids, and he is telling them to. Uh, to leave the country because they don't belong here. And, you know, it's steered up so many reactions. He's kind of racist. I mean, he the, the way he talks to this Muslim family is very offensive. It's very insulting. Uh, no doubt about that. Um, and I wrote about it because I think that, you know, it, of course, you know, in less than 24 hours, even the prime minister had condemned this video. So it went to the top level at once. And my first thought was, and I've talked to several Danes who thought the same, that this video was produced on purpose because they needed that kind of video to start the wokeness movement in Denmark for real. Because now I saw yesterday in the news that a survey uh, tells that 42% of all Danes now think that there is a problem with racism in Denmark. And, you know, Danes, they're not racist. They're very kind people. So now, because of this video, they have sort of provoked this reaction. I, you know, I can't prove that it was produced on purpose. And uh, But the way, I mean, the guy who who, uh, who is the racist uh, Dane in the video, uh, nobody knew who he was, so he... He just wore a green jacket. So for some days, he would just he, he was he was just named the man in the green jacket. And then a newspaper found him, and you know the guy was sort of miserable. He had been sitting down by the harbor. He had been drinking all day. So he said himself that he was quite pissed. He was drunk, and then suddenly he just freaked out and he yelled at this Muslim family. And he was extremely sorry. He said, "Oh, I'm so ashamed. I'm." So so I really want to apologize to this Muslim family, and he did, but it was like it was not enough. And that what I and that's what I find very alarming is that if you make a mistake these days, and you uh, sort of you are repentant and you come forward and you say I I'm really truly sorry, it's not enough. It's not, really not enough. It, you know, it doesn't matter. You just finished. No mercy. It's only. Justice, social justice, and more specific, and more specifically, only our solution to this problem will do. That's always what makes me suspicious. It's okay. The guy was a jackass. Okay, he apologized as he should because he shouldn't have said this. But that's not good enough because we actually have our own agenda for how society should respond to this. Exactly, exactly. And now, of course, he was charged with uh, racism, and I think he's going to get a penalty. He's not going to jail. So, so what I was what what I wrote about is that how come that we have this enormous need to condemn and to judge a person? Why don't we say, oh, poor guy, uh, he's really miserable, he's a jackass, like you said, but let let but let the courts deal with him, and then we move on. No, no, no. Now it's it's going to be, you know, a, something that will change our culture because everybody is offended and insulted. And, you know, this, this readiness to feel insulted, excuse me, I think it's very self-centered because people are so extremely occupied with themselves instead of saying, oh, poor guy. I mean, he's so miserable. I mean, it's, you know, he, he must really have a bad life. Uh, so, I mean, uh, let's just let the courts deal with him. But instead, now everybody is offended on behalf of this Muslim family. I can understand that the Muslim family was insulted and they, they didn't like it. But when you see the video, the way they speak, to me, it sounds like constructed or some kind of artificial. 
And that's why I, I, I still have doubts whether it was not produced on purpose to exactly to steer up this Vogue wave in Denmark. In your mind, um, I, I found it very interesting that that so many things seem to have coincided, right? So you have the the, the COVID nineteen pandemic. You've got people staying home. Then you have these um, these sort of flashpoints in the woke wars that have created this outpouring of energy that have has a lot to do with the fact that you know people just need a, a place to pour out all their pent up anger and their energy, and, and and especially in the U.S. when you saw the massive protests after after the George Floyd killing, right? Hundreds of thousands of people like on the streets you know during during you know pandemic restrictions it was totally fine in canada you know everybody was on lockdown but justin trudeau still joined you know this massive crowd of protesters on parliament hill to take a knee to make sure everybody knew that he also cared about this sort of thing there seems to be a lot of uh, like a confluence of things that are taking place at the same time to what degree do you think that the like the woke response is actually just what you referred to earlier as another thing filling the spiritual vacuum that people need something to believe in because honestly some of the videos the black lives matter videos that were coming out over the last year with people chanting you know we apologize and all that like a lot of it just seemed like secular worship services secular liturgy secular penance they were going through the whole the whole nine yards i couldn't agree more because we have a lot of we have a lot of us several false religion now that is is being sort of created and i think what you you're right the book and also the climate uh, change uh, movement it's also so, sort of semi religious and the covid is the covid pandemic has also turned into a new religion with its own rituals and a new sacrament which is of course the vaccines so i think yeah you're right it's because we have this spiritual void so people are, you know, now they think with the vogue-ness, they can turn by social justice, they can make a sort of paradise on earth. If they're just going to eliminate all the white people, then, you know, we will have paradise on earth. So it's just a repetition of communism, in fact. And communism was a religion substitute. And, you know, communists, they always hated the church because they know that if Christianity is is flourishing, people would know the truth. They will be able to discern what's good and bad, right and wrong. And that's what they don't like because the Vogue uh, wave is actually just aping Christianity in many ways. Um, and I think evil always, you know, evil cannot come up with something new. Evil always apes uh, what is good and then it perverts. Because of course, Black people should not be harassed. Everybody can agree on that. But now it is turning into a, you know, a sick ideology that is going to you know, completely deny our history and, de and, and degrade it and, and just destroy it. So all national histories are now being completely you know, erased. And that's, 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 not, uh, that's not healthy for our society. So I think you're right, but I think it is a kind of perverted it is a perverted spirituality because it's actually sort of twisting uh, what used to be good and calling darkness light and light darkness. So it's it's a kind of reverse spirituality. And that's, I've, I think, it's, it's making people very confused. What has the uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic been like uh, for those of you in Denmark? I know um, we've talked about this, uh, this before, just on a personal level about, you know, how depressing it was everybody having to stay apart from each other, sort of like in their own bubbles and the bubbles colliding, but people never touching and, and, and how, how demoralizing that was. What's uh, give us an idea of what the last year or so, um, has been like for you and for Danish society in general. Well, I think we have not been under severe lockdown. I mean, we didn't have a curfew. because I know many European countries that have had curfews. We didn't have that. But we were supposed, of course, to wear the face masks. And we had a lot of restrictions. A lot of shops were closed down. Um, cultural events, you know, sports games, theaters, you know, like all other countries. But I think... To me, what is most concerning is that it is changing people's mentality. 
these days, the politicians and the government are discussing now to sort of soften up the restrictions because now we are 5 million people here and more than 2 million has now been vaccinated. So it doesn't make sense anymore. We have abs- ab- we have almost no people in hospital with COVID. So, you know, a lot of politicians, the right wing, we have a left wing government. They are pushing uh, that we should, now we should stop the restrictions. But of course, um, the government doesn't want to do that. Plus, uh, a psychiatrist said the other day, in an article, I think it was yesterday, he said that um, that people now would feel sort of unsafe because they have to t- take off the mask. And uh, that would be, you know, a frightening thing for people now just to, to act like normal people. <laughs> I think that's worrisome that just to be a normal person now, a normal person with normal behavior would be frightening for people because people are, some people are still very afraid. So I think it's going to take a long time. We are a tiny country. We're, we're normally, you know, um, we're, normally we would socialize and, and be close to each other. And I think it's going to take a long time before we're back to normal because people are now used to the social distancing and that there is certain limitations uh, of how many people can come together, and you have to wear the fa- we have to wear the face masks and things like that. So I think it has been a kind of like almost mind control brainwash. So I don't know what's going to happen now if people would come back to normal very quickly or not. And you know I doubt that this reopening is going to last very long because I expect that we will have a new lockdown already in September. And then they, they, and, and that will be because of a new strain. And then they would tell the vaccinated people that this vaccination they got uh, is not really very sufficient uh, because of the new strain. So that they will have to be vaccinated all over again. And then we're back to square one. This is what I fear. And I think that's very likely that's going to happen. So maybe explain something to me, because you're the, the second or third person I've read or heard say this, that there's a lot of people um, who are actually nervous about um, relinquishing restrictions and, and, and ending and ending uh, lockdowns and, and, and stop uh, cease wearing masks, pardon me. And there was actually an essay in The Atlantic magazine, which is a liberal publication um, titled The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown, that basically sort of described not only what you're saying, but of course, also referencing the political virtue signaling that comes with, you know, mask wearing and lockdowns. Like the, the more the more radical you are in your acceptance of these measures, you know, the more progressive you are, the more you care about people's health, that sort of thing. But I'll admit that I don't understand the the this side of things where people feel safer with masks and lockdown. And maybe it's because I don't live in a big city. Um, and, you know, the sun is shining and my chickens are out and it's kind of actually hard to imagine um, what people in, you know, the downtown metropolises are dealing with. But but could you explain to our listeners, like, like what is it? Is this Stockholm syndrome or like how, how do people get to the point where they find the restrictions not suffocating, but actually like a, a security blanket? It's because, I mean, the reason why people have accepted all these lockdowns, there is only one answer to that. And that is fear. Our culture is not now driven by faith, but by fear. And you know, when people are frightened, they will do things like that. They will accept, you know, like wearing face masks and they will feel more secure like that. It's because we have abandoned faith. It's all about the apostasy because, you know, I, uh, I gave a talk the other day because we have, we had our national we have the day where we celebrate our constitution of law. So it's very normal that, that pundits and politicians, they, they are being invited for a meeting and you talk about the constitution of law and things like that. And I talked about that because I said, how come that we have been willing to let go of all our constitutional rights in this country? Because we have been teaching other people about democracy and freedom and freedom of speech and the Muhammad cartoons and all this. So, you know, we have been the champions of democracy. And now in just, you know, less than two years, we have accepted that we are completely restricted. We have, we we don't have rights like we used to have because we, we have willingly given it up. And I said, how come that we did that? 
And there is only one answer to that, and that is fear. And if, and that was one of my points, if we had been a Christian culture with more faith, how would we been how would we had how would we have been reacting? And I think we would not have accepted the lockdowns to that extent. And we would never have accepted that our constitutional rights were suspended. And I think it comes down to that because of the spiritual void, people are so afraid of, of death because they don't believe in afterlife. They don't believe in anything. They don't believe in God. So that, and that makes it very easy for the government to control people if they just can make them very frightened. And this is what they're doing because people, of course, I mean, human beings are afraid of dying. I mean, everybody's, most people are afraid of dying. But if you are Christian, there is a solution because you believe that life will continue after death because of the, the sacrifice and the resurrection of Christ. And that's very comforting. But if you don't have that, I mean, of course, you do as the government tells you to do. And you're willing to do everything to preserve your life. And I also think that if we, we were Christians and if, if the government would have been Christian, they would have sort of had more confidence in our own ability to reason and to take care of ourselves and not, you know, make a rule for everything. They have made rules for everything. How many can be uh, present at, at a birthday party and how many people can come for, to a funeral, things like that. So, I mean, make people, make people make their own choices and how, you know, big a risk they want to take. That's part of life. I mean, you have to be responsible yourself about, I mean, if you were really afraid, stay home, it's fine. But if you are willing to take the risk, you can go out as you want. I mean, that is a Christian society. Of course, we should take care of each other. But what they have done to us in this country, uh, that is totalitarian. And people have accepted it only because of fear. And back to what we talked about before, this spiritual void, is doing so much harm to us. I mean, when it comes to immigration, when it comes to, to, uh, to this pandemic and the wokeness, it's all about that we have the spiritual void. So like uh, Chesterton, the English uh, Catholic uh, writer, he said, when people stop believing in God, uh, they start to believe in anything else. It could be all sorts of things they start to believe in. They don't believe in nothing. They believe in all sorts of things. And I think that's true. And we see that people are, are confused and they're fearful, and that's not a good combination. Do you feel like the fear is pretty widespread? Because I have to say, in terms of just accepting what the government wants, right, the, the one response that people might make when they hear you say that is, well, most of the churches pretty much knuckled under as well. And then, you know, and it depends on where you are. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, and you know, this, it, it, it's a difficult question to some extent, because I feel like there's, there's also churches that are being sort of obnoxious and, and gratuitous in, 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 in their, in their pursuit of, of, of martyrdom or being a rebel. And then there's other churches who won't push back against even the most unreasonable restrictions. And it's very difficult to know what the right answer is, but somebody might respond and say, um, are the churches caving into fear as well by sort of obeying what you would call unreasonable restrictions? What was that like in Denmark? Well, here the majority of churches are, you know, state churches. We have one state church called the, the People's Church, which is um, actually the Protestant Lutheran Church, which is a kind of state church. Um, it has a paragraph in the Constitution of Law, uh, and the head of the church is uh, the church minister, not the bishop. So the state is actually the head of the church. Um, and they, of course, they just followed the instructions by the government and they locked down. But then, you know, last year for Easter, the church minister said, well, I really think we should try to find a solution so you can be open for Easter, because a lot of people would like to go for uh, a service uh, during the Easter. But you know what? The bishops and the priests and the people who are working in the church, they said, no, let's keep it closed down. We don't want to open. It's too risky. I was just 
appalled. I mean, how can you say as a priest, as a bishop, no, let's keep it closed. I mean, that was just completely absurd to me. And um, so they have not been able to stand up and say, well, the church is the last thing that we close, has to be a beacon of light in this darkness. And the door should be open 24 hours so people can come and pray and they can talk to a priest. Uh, they can receive the sacraments if they want that. So for me, it was just a, a sign that now the church has completely aligned with society or the secular society. There is no difference between the church and the secular society that was just following the rules. They didn't even want to open up when they were, when even the, when the state suggested that they could be open, they said no. So that was, I mean, a shock to me that they had become so secular. And I think that, of course, if you, of course, the church should have been open. If you um, go back to uh, the Middle Ages when you had the Black Plague, I mean, no church was closed. It was open. And the priests were, minister, were ministering to all the, the, the dying people all the time. They went out uh, to, to, uh, to be with, with, with dying people. Um, and now, I mean, the church was so afraid. I, I mean, not all Christians would would agree to this. And many Christians would would be would be were very upset that the churches were closed. But in general, as an institution, you have seen that all the Western churches were just complying. They did not say, "Well, this is unreasonable." And for instance, the Catholic Church—they're not part of the state. They could have said, "Well." It's fine, but uh, of course we don't want to be a place where people get, uh, uh, where people contract the virus. But we will take our own measurements and we will do, uh, we will be precautious, but we won't close the church, never ever. And I was I was very disappointed that the Catholic Church just followed again the secular society. But of course, you know, it is a fine balance because let's say that the churches has had been open and a lot of people would have contracted the virus in the church. Then, of course, the church would have become extremely unpopular. So it is, you know, also I can see that from the bishop's point of view that if the churches were open and people got sick in the church, I mean, what? Uh, that's really a bad story. Uh, in the news. So I understand that. The one point that uh, you've made before, and uh, Gabrielle Kuby, um, who's a, a, an author who works from Germany, she wrote The Global Sexual Revolution. She's been on this podcast before as well. She wrote this in an essay for First Things. And a lot of people in my own reform tradition have said the same thing, is that God is obviously speaking through the pandemic. It is obviously a judgment. And I know that you've said this before as well, that because judgment starts in the house of God, that churches should also be introspective and looking at themselves and asking, um, well, why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to us? And, and how should we respond to that? So just to, to close it off, I'd really like your take on, on, on that because you've had a lot of insightful things and interesting things to say about it, especially in your home context of Denmark. Yeah, it's true. I think that, that uh, we should ask ourselves why God uh, allowed that the churches were closed. Because in the Christian faith, you believe that nothing happens without God allows it. So um, in that regard, we have to ask ourselves, what is God trying to tell us? That we have come to, we have come to a point where, you know, the door has been shut and we can't even enter the church. Um, I think it is a crucial question. Um, and I think one of the most, I think it was quite sad to see that people were not at once establishing like churches in their own houses, because we could have done that because the first Christians did that in the family. Uh, uh, the first churches, uh, if you go back uh, to, for instance, the Acts of the Apostles, which is one of the books in the Bible, in the New Testament, you see how they were gathering in families and in houses. Uh, we could have done that. 
So I think um, God is trying to, uh, yeah, maybe it's a kind of chastisement that, so we have to be, you know, woken up. But I also think saying that, um, that this crisis could be an opportunity for us to evangelize more, uh, you know, because a lot of people, they realized during this this pandemic that, well, you could not, there was, there was really no entertainment except from Netflix. You couldn't go out and, you know, have a nice time in town. You couldn't, you know, go to, go to shops and just, you know, do a lot of shopping, things like that. So in such a crisis as this, we could have done more to try to convert people. And uh, because we have a sort of sickness in our culture. I mean, we have a cultural disease, we have a crisis of faith, and now we have this pandemic where we are, we are, you know, some people get sick. So I think it was a good opportunity for us to try to con convert, but I, I, I really haven't seen a lot of, you know, initiatives like that. It's more like we just, we just, we were just complying. And uh, I think if you go to the Old Testament, uh, you see that all political catastrophes and, and invasions and, and famines and plagues and things like that starts with the people abandoning God, turning their back on God. That is a, you know, that is a theme in the Old Testament for all the prophets. They're trying to warn people and say, well, if you don't repent, if you don't come back to God, catastrophe will come upon you. And I think we could we could see this pandemic um, uh, in the same kind of light, say, okay, is this happening to our culture? Because we have been abandoning God for so long. God tried to wake us up because the doors were closed. It was a kind of chastisement. How did we, how did we, how did we respond to it? We were just complying with the secular authorities. So it means in a way that the church is dead. I mean, we have, we have, we are completely asleep. And now we are just walking blindly into a new totalitarian uh, system where like here in Denmark, we see that we were the freest country in the world with most democratic rights. We have, you know, total freedom of speech. Now we see that new laws are being implemented. We have, we have all our constitutional rights are suspended. And um, yeah, the church, if there will be a new lockdown, it will probably be locked down again as well. And the Christians, they don't react. So uh, I think it is a sign um, for us to wake up and say, okay, we're sleeping. We're sleeping. We have to do something here. On that note, uh, Ivan, where can our listeners find your work? I know you have a YouTube channel, um, and I know your, a lot of your stuff is online. So um, where can uh, where can our listeners find your other insights? Well, they can go on YouTube and search for Tranholm Talks. Which this is my channel. Uh, and, uh, of course, I also have a Twitter account. Uh, just, you know, they can just search for my name. And also my Facebook, I have a Facebook page also for English speaking people. So I'm easy to find on Twitter and Facebook and on YouTube. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with the journalist and broadcaster, Ivan Thranholm. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Head over to LifeSiteNews.com and click on the podcast tab if you want to subscribe or check out past episodes. We thank you for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week. Bye for now.